start with two apologies, as always. The first is, obviously, I'm not from Sheffield, so in a sense, this won't be a view from the city of Sheffield. Uh, so I hope it's going to fit in with the theme today. And the second one is, I've started to do a couple of you, and I know that some of you have been talked before. It may be one or two of the slides or the jokes or whatever have been recycled, in which case I apologise. Um, don't take it out of me, then. I put up some uh, contact details there. I will say this. Uh, I'm happy for people to contact me later to the email address. I will respond. It may make, take me a day or two. But if you wanted to say I was one of the people in that talk and I didn't understand that third thing, or can you give me an extra reference um, to the thing you said, the second thing, uh, or to argue with what I'm saying, I'm really happy to. Uh, so anybody wants to contact me about research, that would be good. I'm going to talk about contextualized data, but first of all, I want to give you a little bit of context. Um, in a sense, this is an inappropriately, time, inappropriately timed talk, because I'm just starting um, three studies that I think will be really interesting. I should have listed that there. But as such, although we've prepared the bids and we're, we're underway with the Scottish one, uh, for a number of reasons, the Scottish Funding Council haven't yet been able to give us the data that we require to do the study. So, although we haven't have to rush that at the end, it's very early days in those projects. So watch that space, I hope, if you're interested in what's going to happen. Uh, so we're doing those three things. And it's also led to me being asked by Hefke to go to Cheltenham to talk to them about modelling contextual indicators. Um, as you probably know, they're, they're, they're under pressure about releasing data or not releasing data. And it would be interesting for me to go down and see what it is they're intending to do. Um, so hopefully we'll have half an hour at the end and you, you, we can discuss these issues. Having spoken to some of you in the build uh, while waiting to, to start today, I know that many of you have experienced some of the issues that I'm going to raise. So what I'm going to say won't be new to you, uh, but I'd like to then hear some of those stories from the field um, in the second half. What I'm trying to argue is we need um, studies like such as these in order to actually determine whether, if we use contextual data, which ones should we use? Would it make the situation better or worse for those for whom we're, you know, for whom we're concerned, like our, our challenge group? And what will happen to them when they get to university? You know, how's it going to be in terms of attainment? So is, are the universities shooting themselves in the foot in terms of any future value-added schools or something like that. So we'll be looking at all of those issues using um, a range of data via um, the uh, administrative data network and secure lab and so on. So I'm going to provide, first of all, some context for why we have contextual approaches. I hope that's OK. Uh, depends how long. I'm not sure how long it will take, but we'll see. The first thing I want to say is something I often say. We actually know a lot less about working participation than some people think, and certainly we know a lot less than we should. Uh, I mean, much less than many commentators and policymakers portray, and perhaps some universities and you know, management of universities are required to portray in what they do and what they say. So, for example, you know, there, there are famous examples. There is no lack of, clear lack of social mobility in the US. Uh, you know, the evidence that had been presented, I think, has been fairly evenly shot down, but we're still stuck with the social mobilities are and all the billions of pounds that have been spent on that to solve a problem that may not actually exist, or if it exists, it doesn't exist in the form 
that the Sutton Trust and other advocates suggest it did. Um, there's not much evidence at all that um, admissions processes to universities work against the most deprived. So if you look at applicants to universities and then selection, to, you know, what happens, who actually turns up to university, who is accepted, there's actually a small amount of widening participation going on, and it's always gone on, historically, between that moment. So the major problem has always been who's applying, not so much who gets in. So universities have, even though, you know, the culprits of Oxford and Cambridge have to some extent been um, more generous to those from disadvantaged backgrounds than you might have expected purely in terms of you know, uh, prior attainment grades and things like that. The other thing that you know, people aren't entirely clear about, but should be clear, is that in general, aspirations among young people are fine. Some that are unrealistic, you know, 11 year olds want to be you know, Ronaldo or, or Lionel Messi or whatever, uh, or equivalent. But you know, we could say, is that unrealistic or is that a high aspiration? In general, where studies have been done, you know, serious studies, aspiration is high among young people including to go to university, not always realistically, but that, we'll come to that point later, um, and it's largely unstratified by social class and other aspects like family income, which is unusual. In most areas of social policy, you get these stratification, but what people want to do with their lives when they're young is actually largely not stratified by those things. It's sort of later life that gets it kicked out of them and possibly attainment at school, so that people's aspirations get more refined as they approach 16, 17, 18. But it's largely as a consequence of public examination results, rather than you know, anything else that's happening in life. I mean, to, 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 to take an obvious example, it's all very well having a widening participation policy, but for a child, and there are still children in this country, who leave school before the legal age, say 14, maybe they're put notionally into a, uh, a referral unit or into a, uh, an FE college, but whose level of literacy is below, below that what you, what you expect from a citizen. It would find it hard to read a railway timetable, it would find it hard to read the instructions for a gas cooker. These are not people who are going to be influenced by widening participation. So since the most disadvantaged, the 60, 70% of the um, of the population who are not concerned with widening participation are kind of left out of all of this. There is nevertheless a widespread belief that there are particular socioeconomic groups or um, other groups that are unfairly underrepresented in first-time undergraduate courses in the UK. We probably all share that belief. And acting on that belief, practitioners, policymakers, and so on, have sought to widen participation. And that's been going on since perhaps the early 1990s as a kind of an official government stance. And the words like widening participation came into um, you know, strong play. And the, you know, the idea behind widening participation is clearly to increase the representation of students from these underrepresented groups. This is very different from simply increasing the number of people who go to university. So if you look at the social class of first-time undergraduate entrants or their um, parental income or whatever indicator we want to use, the period in which we widen participation in the sense of increase those underrepresented was in the 1990s when more places were made available. And the same is true internationally. 
times, you know, when, when the Czech Republic moved from 8% to 20% or whatever, that's the time when uh, you're, you're bringing in people who are more unlike the people who are already there. So the easiest way to widen participation is to increase it. But that's not really what widening participation means. And we're not really living in an era when uh, participation is going to increase dramatically. We haven't even reached the um, Tony Blair administration targets, let alone overshoot them in, 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 into elsewhere. And we've come settled on a 38 to 42% participation rate, something like that. You know more accurately than me what it is today. So what you're doing there is by widening participation, by saying, right, we're going to offer a place to somebody who is from a disadvantaged group, is we're actually going to replace them. We're going to replace somebody who would otherwise have got that place with this new person. Not necessarily a problem, but we have to consider what kind of justice we're looking at here and whether by doing so we increase injustice in some other way, inadvertently. Because every place we give to one individual, if there's a fixed number of places, then, in general, a fixed number of places within the sector, is a place we're not giving to somebody else. So we're not looking for a dramatic increase in numbers, we're looking for a different kind of student. Is that fair? A whole range of um, activities have been used to try and uh, produce this. The most common is the kind of aim high type model, which is based on both information and aspiration. So uh, generating better knowledge for people to make choices and showing people they have choices and giving them, or trying to encourage aspiration. Uh, I think it would be true to say uh, today it's still the case that these activities are widespread. They take a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of caring people take part, and so on, and a lot of potential students have enjoyed them, but they've never been rigorously evaluated. We don't know if they cash out into sort of bums on seats in universities or people who would not otherwise had university in their trajectory. And I'm not sure quite why that is, and we'll look very quickly at some of the possible reasons why that's but I think to some extent, you have to say it's been so long and it's such a widespread phenomenon that what means is the sector, the policymakers, don't want to know. If they wanted to know, they could find out. Well, we've had plenty of time to see through cohorts and to, to run all sorts of exciting um, designs to decide whether this is happening. But at the moment, we have a situation where, to some extent, institutions have been given responsibility for what must surely be a national phenomenon. Uh, and they are, to some extent, while they're cooperating, they are, to some extent, competing with each other for the same pool of students, the usual suspects. Generally, those people who are most like the people who are already going to universities in previous cohorts or will be going in the next cohort. They're not searching for radically different students. They're looking for students that are just a little bit, you know, a grade or two lower or, you know, an income bracket lower or something like that. The problem we've got is that universities are currently uh, largely selective in their intake. So even those that have the, like, the lowest level of selection are still looking for something. And in general, I think it would be fair to say that each university is as selective as, is, as it is able to be while um, filling its books. 
Right? And to some extent, then, the prestige of the university is based on a pecking order, which is on how selective they are. And all of that works completely against the idea of winding participation. You can imagine it's completely um, inimical to it entirely. I mean, I was for a long time uh, at uh, the admissions tutor at Cardiff University, and the particular uh, subject area that I was um, responsible for, which is within social sciences, tended not to get huge numbers of oversubscribed applicants. So that my concern every year was to fill the places. And we would get penalised by Hefke by the university if we didn't fill the places. So we were kind of um, grubbing around for students. I shouldn't say this. We were basically grubbing around for students who would look respectable on the books, but who hadn't necessarily applied to that course in the first place. So I was doing a lot of change course code offers, uh, looking at people who'd, offer, who'd applied to do combined courses and say, do you want to do one element of this and things like that? And Cardiff is, you know, Russell Group University was deemed to be selective. And of course, in, in areas like English and psychology, it was very, very selective. But in other areas, less so. Just like all universities, including, I suspect, Sheffield. There will be huge variety between them. <coughs> because we use prior attainment, by and large, for the majority of first-time undergraduate places, the stratification of those qualifications in the general population is the stratification of higher education. It's not like we've taken a lot of people and then suddenly found, oh my goodness me, surprise, surprise, these people are more likely to be from private schools or more likely to be from you know, posher homes. If you use the qualifications that people get at 16, 17, 18, uh, uh, or, and or, of course, other experiences, you can take that into account, then obviously you're going to get an intake which is stratified by the way in which those are stratified. And they are stratified, but they're stratified at P-stage 2. In fact, you know, there's considerable evidence that um, children's talents, or whatever you want to call it, their ability to read and write, is stratified at preschool by the same variables that widening participation um, practitioners are trying to overcome. I mean, and you know, all know this, but it's worth reminding ourselves every so often that we're fighting against a very, very you know, long term in each individual's trajectory set thing. To disturb it by the time someone's 16 over summer holiday is a very, very hard task. There's not a lot you can do about that. It's quite hard to do it when they're four or five, but it must be much harder when they're 16, 17. And it means you end up with um, you know, the situation we have now because uh, boys tend to do slightly worse at school than girls than you know, males underrepresented in university. Those who are declared as UK ethnically white underrepresented slightly in universities as far as we can tell, so that white males are the most underrepresented group and yet they're not often a target for widening participation. Maybe we could discuss later why that is, why the most underrepresented group is largely ignored in favour of um, groups that perhaps have more, I don't know, media appeal? Or, you know, what is it about, you know, what is it about females or some of the ethnic minorities that means that we target them more than others? It's the case that whenever people have managed to get the data, that the qualified age participation index is near 100%. That is, the vast majority of people who are qualified to go to um, 
higher into higher education as an undergraduate do so, already do so. Uh, and the vast majority of people who don't go to university are not in the starting gate. They may not even have an English Maths at GCSE or equivalent. I know there's concern uh, about within the sector about because of the selective nature of different institutions, because of their historical and geographical circumstances, about who goes to which university. But my concern has been primarily with who goes to university or not goes to university. Yes, we have a concern within the sector, but actually to solve one problem, you actually solve both. And I'll give you my very unoriginal solution at the end. Another one which is never considered, I think, is the, if like, the, the summer birth, children. August child. I don't know if any of you saw the piece I wrote in New Scientist about how we could overcome the problem of summer born, but that's a really important indicator, I think, of context of how well people do. So although, in as far as we can judge gaps in attainment over time, because the metrics change, it's quite hard to do. When children enter school, those who are born in the summer are at a huge disadvantage. Academically, they tend to be smaller, uh, they're different in their friendship groups. Of course, we also know that you know, they, they're less likely to be picked for school teams for the rest of their life because we have competitive sports. So that, you know, our, the England soccer team is primarily um, populated by winter-born people who were winter-born, even though they're now 25 to 30 year olds. These things matter and they last through life because of the way in which um, children are sent in age cohorts. But again, widening participation largely ignores that. I suspect if I was to ask you in, in 40 minutes, wherever it is, how many of you who work in the area use the month of birth as a criterion for judging people's attainment and progress at school in coming to decide to make an, an offer? Probably none of you would have said that. And it's really strange. I, I mean, what I argue strongly is that we should standardize, age standardize, all attainment. So when children take Key Stage 2 at roughly age 10 or 11, the exact date within the year should be taken into account. So the level or the fine points they get or they're going to get the grades will depend on that in the same way as it would in you know, any um, professional test of literacy or reasoning or something like that. What else don't we know? Well, almost nothing is, is ever tested. We don't know what... Um, what works and what doesn't work in mind participation. You have one of the problems, which is, of course, the people who are employed by institutions to do widening participation have to show that they succeed. And, of course, they do, and no one can blame them for doing that. But what they haven't really done is tested um, whether they have. So most of our evidence is based on things like, you know, uh, correlations, pre-post-test, progress over time, things like that, which are very, very weak evidence of evaluation. <coughs> We don't even know if higher education pays off for people. You know, all of our data is out of date. By definition, it's about 30 years ago. Um, and it's based on, on correlations. This is a delayed correlation. Now, we don't know what would have happened to the people who went to university if they hadn't gone to university and what their income would have been when they were 33. There are now what are called counterfactuals. Counterfactuals are easier to create, but that's reinforces my sense that people don't really want to know whether the stuff is working or not. Um, to some extent, there's a different game going on. Not sure what it is, but it's there. The research designs that are used, and I use design loosely, because in general people don't use any kind of research designs, um, they can't be used to reveal causal mechanisms. 
People claim that they can, but they clearly can't, and we'll look at a couple in a minute. And this state of affairs is largely defended by those people with a vested interest in the status quo. So I was going to ask for something slightly more radical. I want to give you an example of a trial I did. You'll see, you won't see the relevance immediately, but some of you will have seen this. I mean, I've now done 50 randomized trials in the last five years. I'm currently running eight. Not all about higher education, some are to do with participation, some are to do with attainment. What you find in all of them is that the people who, who are developing an intervention and the people who are conducting the intervention, and even the people who participate in the intervention, think it's going really well. So what we do with the trial is we normally have two components, the impact evaluation and the process evaluation. So the impact evaluation is saying, before you start, tell us what your success criteria are, and we'll evaluate that. So with mo many of the things I'm doing, maybe it is attainment. Attainment for most disadvantaged pupils. So you say beforehand, I want to compare that with a group of people without a fair comparison, who don't get this intervention. So an example I had was a, a, a trial of literacy software. The manufacturers say, if you use this software for literacy, the children, I say age 10 or 11 for 10 weeks, the children will improve by this amount. So we ran the trial. We had two randomized groups. One got the literacy. One were taught literacy in the normal way. We interviewed all the key stakeholders, the teachers, the, the parents and so on. Everybody thought it was marvellous. The teachers thought it was good because they could teach children, you know, at their own pace. It meant that they could, the children could keep going on with the software while they walked around and could give uninterrupted time, more than they could in a normal class setting, to people who really needed help. The children liked it because they could work at their own pace. The parents liked it because they got reports every week of the progress the children had made and so on. So everyone loved it. The happy sheet evaluation was great. The evaluation of the impact suggested that the children had improved their literacy by about the same amount as the manufacturers had claimed. The problem was that the group that hadn't had the literacy had improved their literacy by about twice as much. <laughs> and you meet this again and again and again. You cannot simply ask people whether stuff is working. You have to pick what is the purpose of this intervention. Now, if it was aim higher, aim higher was never evaluated. Some of you will have seen this before. And people get very defensive about the fact that these things are never evaluated. Now, but it would be easy. I mean, Hefke end up saying there is no scope for setting up a social science experiment in which the experience of a WP group is compared with a control group. But there are a number of different designs. I'm not going to sort of teach you designs here today, but things like uh, regression discontinuity. Most activities, most interventions are rationed. So there are ways in which you can organize them. There are things like waiting list designs, where half of them get it now and half of them get it next term or next summer. So everyone gets the intervention, but you've got some estimate of the impact of the intervention after one year as a step wedge design. Um, the regression discontinuity is one where if you're deciding who's eligible for this intervention, often there's some background criteria. You know, I did a, a study of, um, again, unrelated, but, but you know, of, of the um, provision of spectacles for children in sub-Saharan Africa. And basically, it was a visual acuity test. And the people who fell below a certain level got free spectacles, and those just about didn't. And that means you've got an unbiased estimate of the impact of spectacles, because the people on either side of that division are very, very similar to each other. And they give you a really nice estimate. 
You don't have to change what you're doing. The children are going to get the spectacles or not anyway. And similarly with widening participation activities, there, are, there is loads of scope for designing activities that would give you a robust evaluation of whether they worked or not. Right? But you have to follow people up on them and see what happens. So we have this, you know, they say oh, it's harshly criticizing, harshly criticizing um, evaluation of aim higher and similar things. And they say instead, um, oh, well, we, we, did a, we, did, we did another review based on a survey of evidence from the HEIs, and they said, you know, it's all working really well. Which is why I told you the story about the IT evaluation. The fact that people think it works well is not in itself evidence that it does work well. We do the process evaluation, we do the happy sheet evaluation to see if it's working, whether we can improve it, what are the barriers. If it's not working, you know, what's going wrong, where's the, where's the intervention beginning to fail? Is it not being implemented properly? Are people not taking it up? And so on. So the two different kinds of evaluation have different purposes. You can't use the process evaluation stuff as impact evaluation. And then they refer to an NFER report, which found that um, those people who took part in AIM higher activities had higher GCSE scores. Uh, and again, you think, I'd love to sell these people some kind of double glazing approach. If they're that gullible, you know, to think, yes, it doesn't mean that those people got those higher grades because they took part in this. What we need is a group of people who were equivalent to them, and we've got the National People Database. We could have matched those young people with other young people who, as far as we can tell, were all available indicators were exactly the same, but who happened not to have taken part and see um, what their GCSE grades were. Because it could be that in terms of a range of things, eligibility for free school meals, special needs, but even hidden things like motivation and self-esteem could have differed before the group, between the group beforehand. We can't, by law, force people to attend activities, and therefore they are, by definition, volunteers. And those volunteers are self-selected to some extent, and therefore will have pre-existing differences. I find it shocking that an organisation like Hefke, and they're not, they're not the worst culprit, I just thought it was a nice quotation, would accept that kind of evidence. You wouldn't accept that kind of evidence in other areas of your life. You know, if people were testing you know, food safety or something, I don't think you'd want that. Um, and, I mean, I, I won't say too much more about it, but, I mean, you, you've probably all read Hefke guidance on how to evaluate working participation. It nearly always suggests happy sheets approach and outcome measures before and after with no counterfactual. Before and after data is very, very misleading. And I'm sure you can see. The, the good example is that, again, that IT trial. You know, the children did improve, you know, but not as much as the group that didn't get it. So, these are the ones you could sell them. What, what, you know, what do they call it? Snake oil stuff. Because I have a cure for the common cold. Here's a tablet. I'll sell it to you. 50 quid. You've got a cold. In, you know, in four days' time, I promise you, your cold will have gone. Yeah? Well, it's the same logic. Everyone laughs. But, and yet, somehow people have read this and kind of accepted that this is, this is okay. I don't think that we can trust interested parties to make valid ethical decisions about widening participation. I think something, there's a game going on where people want to be seen to be doing stuff and they're not really concerned about um, what the difference it makes. And the reason I say all this is to lead into the issue about um, contextualized admissions. 
because there is a danger that that then suffers from the same problem of, well, let's, be, let's look like we're doing something. We'll, we'll, we'll just stop taking people from private schools or whatever it is. Forget about justice. Forget about what those individuals' lives are like. We'll just do this because it'll look better on, in the newspapers or something like that. And the other thing I just want to say is um, almost everything that people have done uh, has been done with participants. So almost everything we know about uh, the barriers to, think, for example, participating in higher education are based on talking to people who go to university or are thinking of going to university. I mean, the, the people in the AIM Higher we're asking now, we're not asking other people. You know, the classic example was I, I, um, I worked with that Reese review of well, tw twice the two Reese reviews of hardship in Wales, and um, basically they asked students, in a sense, would you like a bit more money? And, and they said, yes, we would. What they didn't do is ask people who don't have GCSE English, is it finance that's stopping you going to university? Because I think they'd have got a very different answer. I know they'd have got a very different answer. I can see from some of your smiles that you can, you can tell that that's the case. So what you tend to get is an overemphasis on the views of the people who are in the game and an underrepresentation, ironically, of the very people who we're trying to represent by widening participation. But we can't go to go and actually talk to them or ask them or, or use them as counterfactuals for the group we have got. Because that would be what, too much trouble. I mean, it isn't too much trouble. That uh, you know, with the, you know, the, the spectacles thing and stuff, we didn't actually have to do anything with the children who didn't get spectacles apart from collect the post-test data. It's not very expensive, these designs, because these people are they're just doing whatever they were doing anyway. You don't have to invest in it. So imagine we actually cared whether things worked or whether they didn't. Well, let, the next thing I was going to put up, just, just before we go into it, is to make you aware of the amount of missing data there will be in almost any system. Now, this is an old slide, but um, I'm sure that you're all aware, and I know from talking to a couple of you before we started, you're aware of how much data is missing about applicants, individuals, the population. So here's one where um, I've done some research with a colleague of mine, Emma Smith, at Leicester, and we've, looked, we've gone back to 1969 as far as we can, and we've looked at the social class and other characteristics of um, young people, first-time applicants to HE, uh, over time, up to the present day. And here's one snapshot year. What can you say about it? Well, it's hard because, of course, they keep, ch they keep changing the classifications, which makes it hard to do a long-term thing. And, of course, uh, the amount of missing data is gradually increasing. It shot up when fee upfront fees were introduced, and I think one of the reasons is that people thought that if they told you what their dad's job was, they would be more likely to be uh, charged fees or higher fees or less likely to get a bursary or something like that, which is not correct, but you can imagine, you can have some sympathy for the idea. Then it makes it hard. How would you decide whether that, those percentages were over or under-representing any of those social groups? You know, is 18% higher managerial or 25% lower managerial origin family children going to university or applying to university or whatever, is that too many or too few? You'd have to consider the population, which you'd expect. You know, what's the situation in the population? Well, what's the population? Do we include overseas students? So do we need to know the lower managerial class in China you know, or the Czech Republic? They're home students, they pay home fees. Or is it just England? Or is it all the home countries? Because it's very different in Wales to England. 
Is it just the people who are traditional age? Or, you know, are we going to allow 93-year-olds to apply to university? Or 14-year-olds? Because the occupational classes are very different for different age groups. You know, the pre-war occupations are very different for post-war. You know, the feminization of the workforce and so on. It's very hard, actually, to decide that any one group is over or underrepresented because you've got all that missing data, all the uncertainties. You have to make some quite um, tough calls, compromises when doing it, which is why often people say, well, I'm only interested in full-time students because we've got better data on full-time students than part-time students. And yet the part-time route could be you know, a godsend to widening participation students. And yet a lot of the data that politicians bandy about is about first-time, full-time students only and with no consideration of the characteristics of part-time students. And again, you can see why that is. And many of the analyses say we're only going to consider this and we're only going to consider you know, this, this country and so on. But then you're kind of, again, by not including people who are not represented and by not including those who could be in part-time groups and so on, you're beginning to whittle away at the group you're actually most interested in, which is the WP students, to focus on the usual suspects again. And they'll tell you what they always tell you, which is these are stratified by the prior attainment of these, of these young people. Often the response rates are very poor. I mean, the, the worst I've seen was in um, the most re recent um, Euro student survey, where the response rates from different countries ranged from 88%, which is 12% missing. Now, that's bigger than many of these groups, including mass by social class. But you tell me, 12% is a lot. That's a lot of potential for bias of 12%. They range from 88% to 1.9%. 1. <coughs> 1. So just under 2%. So what's that? 98.2% of the, of the students are missing from the survey. And yet, this is used as a policy document and it's used to help decide whether the right people are going to university or not. I think that's very dodgy. The largest occupational group in higher education at the moment, or until recently, has been, we don't know. Right? So it's larger than all of them. And the largest ethnic minority group is, we don't know. So it goes, white UK, don't know, and then whatever the next one is. We can't really rely on self-reported descriptions. As soon as you ask people um, these things, they'll either imagine that it's high stakes, so the people might have thought, I'm not going to tell you that my dad's an accountant because my mum's a, a, a surgeon, because I think that might mean that I'm less likely to get a bursary or less likely to get a student grant or something like that or they actually become high stakes. And that's one of my biggest concerns about contextual data, is that once it becomes known that the sector or individual institutions are using a particular indicator, and if it's self-reported, it will change. What my study of this over time is, this does change, but not primarily because of the nature of the applicants. It's people who start not telling you. An analogy would be um, school choice after the 1988 Reform Act, when, when um, parents were able to express a preference in the vernacular to choose schools. Um, schools often had to use oversubscription criteria and they then used things like proximity or catchment areas or feeder schools. And then what happened is that, you know, you've all seen these stories about people um, inventing post-restaurant addresses and so on. And I think the same thing is going to happen with any high-stakes thing which is self-reported. 
So it struck me before this sort of the era we're currently now that we should either accept the validity of prior assessment, like A levels and B techs and so on, and say, well, look, these people are working hard to measure these things, and we're awarding these places selectively. So if we accept these things are valid, we have to accept the stratification that results. The student body is those who have the highest grades. Or, if we're saying, no, we don't trust these, we don't trust these results, we don't think these are valid scores, then we can't use them to admit people into universities. Universities must become less selective, perhaps even you know, open access institutions. I'm sure some of you have read me saying that before. So is contextualised admission a kind of valuable halfway house? So we can say, yes, we basically recognise that these assessments are valid to a large extent, but we think we need to tweak them to a little extent. Um, so we'll keep the selection, we'll keep the qualifications, we'll allow qualifications to determine admissions, but we will use our judgment based on a set of other data to tweak the qualifications in the way that we could, say, by automatically by age standardising scores in terms of people's month of birth in year. And that's how I see um, CA, contextual admissions. So the, the applicants are still assessed in the way they always have been, as is traditional, uh, with their prior qualification as the key factor. But in addition, there's greater consideration of the context in which those qualifications were obtained. Is it valuable? It would have to work in the sense that we'd have to have valid indicators. We'd have to have those indicators for every individual who applied. I'll show you why quite dramatically in a minute. And we'd have to know that this would not somehow uh, damage the university environment and that these people would not be left adrift at university. That they would be appropriate students, but perhaps because of some early life events, their grades are not quite as high as they could have been if those events had not, had not occurred. That's quite a difficult judgment. And the answer is we don't know, which is why I've got those projects, why the SEC has funded us to do this, to try and find out, is there any way of doing this fairly? And, what, and to model the impacts of um, what universities are actually doing. I mean, more than a third, probably now half of UK universities take the socioeconomic background, like social class, or other background context into account when deciding who to shortlist, who to interview, who to give places to. And I think all the people I spoke to beforehand in the talk here were, were doing that in their institutions. And... So we want to demonstrably widen participation without compromising student achievement. So all the things I said before, we must evaluate whether this actually works or not. So I'm not, I can't do that today because I'm, I, we haven't done the project yet and I will you know, watch this space. So the questions I had down are things are, can individuals or institutions use context data correctly? Do we have access to the data we need? Is the data accurate, complete and valid? And does it widen participation? And what about the longer impact? Apart from that last question, I can address those today, and I will do so as quickly as I can. Is that all right? The kind of indicators there are, I mean, people aren't using um, the oldest child thing. So what ten people are tending to use are area measures, so area measures like you know, um, indicators of disadvantage based on postcode data. 
And one of the reasons for using that is that the individual data is not good enough to sustain uh, a use for a decision. So we're judging people on the basis of where they live, or possibly where they've been to school, or certainly at least of where they were last at school, or when they, where they were at school when they applied, not necessarily where they've been to school all their life, which is another interesting thing. If you get an advantage from being in a particular kind of school, you'll find people moving in sixth form to different schools in order to get that advantage. So it could be you know, an area of higher unemployment, a school with high levels of disadvantage. So it's not whether the child comes from a family that's unemployed. It's not whether the child comes from a family with high, level, with high, with high disadvantage. It's whether their peers are. And then the individual measures, such as, say, you know, low parental income. And as I'm sure you're aware, there are huge problems with all of these. So let's just run through them. Here's a quick reminder of a couple of stories. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the key paper came out in, in 1950 by Robinson. But he didn't use the term ecological fallacy. It's been uh, invented since. But he quite clearly demonstrates what's called the ecological fallacy, which is you cannot use group-level aggregate data to make decisions or to understand things about individuals. So in this case, you know, there's a strong correlation between the... Um, level of immigration and the level of literacy in states. So obviously there are particular states on the coast and so on that get more immigrants. I think you find a similar thing in um, Britain. And at that time, the immigrants had, on average, lower levels of literacy as assessed by this study. And therefore, um, the correlation between immigration status and literacy was negative. So immigrants were less likely to have higher literacy. And yet, the states that had the most immigrants had the highest average levels of literacy. If you think about it, it works. You can see why it could be like that. And if you can't, maybe move on to the second one, which is more recent. You know, George Bush won the 15 poorest states in the US in that 2004 election. And John Kerry won most of the wealthiest states. And yet, most of the wealthiest people voted for Bush, and most of the poorer people, or more of the poorer people, voted for Kerry. So you've got wealthy people living in poorer states and poorer people living in wealthier states, and they're not doing what the modal trend is. They're doing something different. So you can't judge who people are, what they do, what their characteristics are by where they live. It's just wrong. And you know, the ecological fallacy is a fallacy. You're wrong to use population area data to make decisions about individuals. And the likely outcome is actually an increase in injustice. Because the, you are far more likely to present it with the highest attaining pupils from the lowest attaining schools. And if you use the fact that from a low attaining school to judge them, you might be disadvantaging some other people who might be the, a lower attainer in a high attaining school or an average attainer in a high attaining school. Someone who's felt for many of their lives that they've been a small fish in a big pond as opposed to a big fish in a small pond. It can be an advantage for self-esteem and so on. You often find where um, there are grammar school systems, the bottom, the lowest, the lowest attaining 10% in a grammar school system at 16 do not continue on to sixth forms. And in the same area, you might have secondary modern schools, and the top you know, 20, 30, 40% in those schools might continue on to sixth form. 
And yet the average attainment of the lowest 10% in the grammar schools is objectively higher than the top 20, 30%, 40% in the secondary models. It's not the actual level of attainment. It's the fact that they've been in a more selective school. They felt like a failure for you know, eight years or whatever it's been, six, five years, whereas the big fish in the small pond has felt, I'm, I'm really good at this, I'll carry on, I want to go to university. Now, I don't want to exaggerate that too much, but I want, I want to be absolutely clear, we cannot use area and population data. I mean, just to try and finish it off, first of all, if you did, clearly people will start misreporting where they live or which schools they went to, and there's no legal requirement on us to, to check it. And secondly, um, the amount of missing data is about the same in one sense, as it is with all the other indicators. So on the National Pupil Database, about 11% of children do not have a valid index of deprivation of either of the two ones they use generally. In the same database, about 11% of children, we don't know, we generally don't know if they were eligible for free school meals or not. Those figures are about the same every year that the National Pupil Database comes out. So if you use an index of deprivation, you're not avoiding missing data. What you're doing is um, using an ecological fallacy to pretend you're overcoming missing data. It's actually worse than that, because if you think about it, if we don't know where some of the children live, we don't have a valid postcode for some of them, then all of the other indicators of deprivation, all the, all the other scores for people, must include those, in a sense, the, the absence of those 11%. The other indicator will be incorrect because we don't have the indicators for 11%. That's not true of free school meals. So for an individual, we might make a mistake in classifying someone as free school meal or not, but that's a separate issue. We know, in a sense, for that child, do they have a statement of special needs? Do they, are they eligible for free school meals or not? And the fact that they're 10, 20, 30% missing doesn't affect our judgment of that child. Whereas as soon as you use area data, you've got so many levels of problems. But if you think about it, it means every single score is contaminated by the fact that you've got missing data. So come back to me at the end if you want, but I want to kind of say, let's not do that. Let's not use any aggregated data to judge whether people are deemed worthy of um, entering higher education. Because it's not about them. And they won't necessarily have the modal characteristics of the people in their school or their area or in that social group, or that you know, ethnic group, or whatever it is. I don't think we can do it. I think it's invalid, and it's likely to lead to greater injustice. And that's one of the things we'll be checking exactly what difference it would make. But I would say from the beginning, just kick it out. What I think we need to do is think about access for deserving individuals. It has to be about an individual, and what we know about that individual. <coughs> Now we're in the middle of, we've finished a systematic review of the evidence of all the contextual indicators that have been used, and we've done a lot of interviews with institutions to find out what, what indicators they have used or are thinking of using. And we've looked at a lot of data sets to look at the characteristics. We haven't done the sort of modeling analysis, but we do know, for example, that you know, we're missing 12% uh, of those children with knowing whether they have a statement of special needs or not. So let's take what I think would be the single best indicator, and I can argue the case later if you want more strongly, which is eligibility for preschool meals. Now the reason that's such a good indicator is that it 
has a, a neat binary legal definition. It's based on official figures. The children have, or the, the, you know, the family have to uh, register, they have to provide documentation that they're on income support, the family support, whatever it is. There's a legal requirement. You can't just be self-reported. It used to be the case, but no longer the case for a number of reasons. So we have to have documentation. It focuses our attention on the lowest 15 to 20% of income in the country. Uh, it's collected by law at least once a year, in fact, several times a year, by all schools and then reported centrally. We have figures for each child about their eligibility throughout their school career. So we know from the age of five onwards whether they were from one of these families, often from before. And I suspect there is, well, I know there's, there's no better data set in the country, probably no better data set in the world than that national data set. So it would be a really good candidate for saying, and we know there's a big attainment gap. We know that on average, those children who are eligible for preschool meals are doing worse than the children who are not eligible. And we can even, as I'll show you later, build up a trajectory of poverty over time. The problem you've got is that where we miss data, and although it's a very, very nice variable, it does have some problems. Let's look at one first, but not the slide. But here's one. There are some indications that the um, once all of the welfare benefits of which free school meal eligibility is one are taken into account, the people who are just eligible for free school meals are not the most deprived among the country. And the people who just miss out on the benefits, who are just above the, the, the safety net threshold, who are actually objectively have lower incomes than them. You get what I'm saying is there's a little at the edges between your fiscal meals, your, you know, this 80% not, this 20% is. There again, there's some kind of muddiness at the boundary. Some of the people who miss out actually end up being poorer than some of the people who don't miss out. I mean, it's not much you can do, but I mean, this is, this is real life, this is real policy. But it does mean that there may, we may slightly endanger people who were just above the threshold of fiscal meals. Because they might be objectively as poor as some of the people who are on fiscal meals. That's not the major issue. I hope you mentioned it. For me, the big issue is this. If you ignore the 7% or so students who are in private fee-paying schools who would mostly not be eligible for free school meals, we'll come back to that, there are some, but mostly would not, you're left with 4% missing every year. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. They could be recent arrivals. They could be, for example, immigrants who have either lost or destroyed their documentation. So the law does not allow them to be registered as missing, as eligible for free school meals. So we've really got not two classes, but three classes. You've got known, I mean, not known to be eligible, known to be eligible, and we genuinely don't know. Now, what the DfE has to do by law is allocate resources, opportunities, and so on, on the basis of eligibility for free school meals. So schools get extra funding through the pupil premium. The Ofsted inspection system is based at least partly on the value-added scores of schools in which the context of free school meal eligibility is taken into account. The Social Mobility Czar awards prizes for schools that um, in increase the, um, or decrease the gap between the attainment of free school meal eligible and not eligible and so on. And the 4% are just ignored. Or, in the case of pupil premium, they're treated as not free school meal eligible. So we actually 
legally it goes back to two, which is not known or known. So not known doesn't mean we know they're not eligible. They're either not eligible or we don't know. But they don't get any of the advantages. So often these are, as I say, they could be recent immigrants. They might have um, English as a second language. They might have all sorts of other family and other problems. The schools will be finding them perhaps harder to teach, but they're going to get none of the incentive payments that the other schools get for free school meal kids. Now, 4% doesn't sound very much, but there are two things you need to know about the 4%. First of all, they're not sort of randomly distributed across the country between regions and schools. They are in particular areas, disproportionately in some schools and some areas. And the second thing is, what's up here? Um, if we look at the next two rows, is although, yes, there is a gap between eligible and not eligible free school meals in terms of any indicator you want to look at. I mean, here I've used the... You know, the level two English and math GCSE equivalent score. I know it's a bit of a rough and ready thing, but you show me. So the 49% of, of children in that year were obtaining that level two indicator, but only 20% were free school meal eligible. But the group that's been lumped in with the not eligible have much worse attainment. They're much less likely to be entered for any um, qualification, any level of qualification, and much less likely to achieve those qualifications. So if we use simply known to be or not known to be eligible for free school meals, we would be unwittingly disadvantaging those students, I think. Because those students are probably the, among the most disadvantaged. Um, this kind of makes the same thing, it's slightly more up to date. You can ignore the middle table because it sort of shows a similar thing. But um, if you look at the top one, uh, we also, what we do know about the, the ones who are. Um, so sorry, what I'm doing here is I'm ignoring the missing data, and now I'm looking at using the long term records of children. We've now got, I've got three groups ignoring the missing. We know the missing are the most disadvantaged, and that's true of other indicators. So almost any indicator, if we're missing data about people, they're probably among the most deprived in that data set, which is a problem for contextualized admissions, isn't it? Yeah? Because you couldn't then just say, ah, oh, right, we'll give some advantage to people who are missing some data. No, unless we say, oh, well, you're one of the 4%, we don't know if you're free school eligible or not. So what we'll, we'll, what we'll do is um, we'll give you an advantage. If you're a grade or two, you slip you through the net. As soon as that becomes known, then parents will no longer register their children for free school meals because, you know, they'll say, well, Okay, they can have a sandwich or a banana or whatever, and, and uh, they'll get into Oxford or Sheffield you know, more easily. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't just say, we'll, we'll assume the missing people are um, problematic. Because, again, it's still in an average one. It might be that a child has moved from Scotland and they're from a really well-to-do family, and the documentation just hasn't caught up with them yet. So, again, you have to look at what we know about the individual, and the problem is we don't always know a lot. Now I'm dividing the, the remaining two groups into three categories. Um, this is a very rough and ready analysis because I haven't done the full analysis yet. So this is the people that we know have never claimed free school meals. The group that are not eligible for free school meals now and the group that are eligible for free school meals now. And my contention is that the group who are... Um, free school meals now must include the people who've always been on free school meals. So you've got like a, a long-term disadvantaged group, 
you've got a long-term non-disadvantaged group, and in the middle, the non-SF in now means they have previously been eligible, but not now. And they represent at least one half of the group that will be moving in and out. Over time, as the economy changes, you know, in bad times, free school meals go up, and in, in good times, they go down. So there are, and there are a range of other indicators. You know, imagine if a local factory closes, eligibility for free school meal will increase. So there are people who are going in and out of it. And among those must be the people who are hovering near the top. So this is an estimate of the wobbly ones. So you've got the firmly free school meals, the firmly not free school meals, and then the other group. I don't mean to disparage them by calling them the wobbly ones. We know what I mean. They're the ones that could be nearer the margins. And again, you can see there's a gradient. In terms of what we know about them, the ones who are firmly free school meals are the most disadvantaged. They're more likely to have a statement of need, special need. They're more likely to have English as an additional language. The group that have had free school meals but not now are in the middle, and the ones with the least disadvantage are the free school meal ones. But normally, if people are considering free school meals, we don't look at those three groups. And of course, in the same way as with the missing ones, it cashes out into uh, attainment. So that the group, although in some of these it's not that different, if you look at the level two indicator at the end, you can see the FSM now has a lower average attainment than the not now, and the <coughs> lower in turn from the ones who've never been involved in free school meals. And to show you the point about <coughs> concentration in areas, look at the bottom table, because I think this is interesting. <coughs> So I'm looking at two areas. I've done, I've done an analysis in the paper. There are other areas. But I chose these two because um, what's shocking about this is if you look at the percentage of never free school meal as opposed to ever free school meal, and the pupil premium is now allocated to schools on the basis of whether a child has ever been known to be on free school meals. So that means proportionately, Kensington and Chelsea and Middlesbrough are getting the same pupil premium. So the extra funding for disadvantage is being channeled equally to Kensington as it is to Middlesbrough. I can see two people looking at shocked like that. I hope you are shocked. If you don't know those areas, go and find out about them. But Middlesbrough is among the most disadvantaged in the country. Now, the reason is because of the kinds of free school meal kids they have. So although the never ones are the same, the other two aren't. So in Middlesbrough, the majority of people who have ever been on free school meals have been on free school meals for their, in, for their entire life. Whereas in Kensington Chelsea, the majority of people who have been on free school meals are no longer on free school meals. It was a temporary thing. Now, it doesn't mean they weren't disadvantaged, but it's not the same kind of thing. I think in the Northeast, there's long, long-term unemployment and deprivation, which is different. Right? Now, we're not here to talk about pupil premium, although, of course, it is in itself a widely participation um, tool because it's meant to fund activities which are only for the most disadvantaged, which will enhance their attainment, and therefore, under our current selective system, mean that they're more likely to attend higher education. But as, what I'm trying to show you is it's unfair to treat individuals, even with this free school meal with its nice legal definition, and the quality of data over decades, and the compulsory uh, requ you know, the requirement for schools to fill this in in the annual school census and send it to DfE. And even though we could all have access to it, it's still not going to do the job, even as an individual indicator, because of some of these problems. We may be inadvertently disadvantaging people that most want it. 
So one of the things we're going to do in the project, and one of the things I hope to work with Hefke, is to look at taking these, um, if you like, the discrimination within poverty similarly. Because although it's not quite the same, I hope you can see there's a kind of ecological fallacy by saying you're free school meal, you're not. Actually, within free school meal, and even within not free school meal, there is individual variation. And although we're not going to get to the stage where we ask, we, we legally require access to the um, Majesty's Customs, was it Revenue and Customs records, so we know exactly what income each, each parent has. That's not going to happen anytime soon. We could use the information we already have. So what I did as for my final slide, where's it gone? Um, and this is sort of very early days. We've started playing with the data we're going to do on the ESSC project. I hope you can understand this. It hasn't, I haven't been able to elaborate the slide very well. Is what I've done here, and again, I've ignored the missing ones. In every category, however many years we know a child's been physically ineligible, the worst group, I mean, the most deprived group, the most disadvantaged group, is the group that we're also missing some data for. But I'm ignoring the missing data. So for those we know about, if on the zero axis going across, the group that have never, we, they've had no years on free school meals. So what, what I've done here is look at how many years during their school career up to 2015 did they spend on free school meals. So if they were never on free school meals, they have the highest level of attainment at 11 and at 16 and so on. So that's the highest level in terms of this. This is a math. I've just chosen one example. Right? All the children who've been on free school meals at all have lower levels of attainment. But there's a clear gradient. So the children who've been all 10 years that we know about at their school who've been on free school meals have the lowest level of attainment, followed you know, neatly by the people who've been on 9, 8, 7, 6. I was quite surprised how neat that is. I mean, you can see there's a bit of wobble. But basically what it's saying is the longer they've been on free school meals, the worse their attainment is. So if we were to use this as an indicator and we could overcome the problems of um, uh, the fact that we're missing at least 4% of key data, then it might be better to use not whether they're eligible or not, but how many years we're known to be eligible. Does that make sense? Because that would give us a better individual indicator of the struggle that those children have had. I mean, it's not going to be ideal. I think one approach would be to model and this is what Hefke is suggesting, rather than releasing the data us, is to model things in which all of the available indicators are used to try and predict how well children will do or how likely they are to progress at something, and, and then in a sense release, release the, um, the model figures with, along with each applicant. And yeah, sure. Yeah. Because it's yeah, of course, yeah. Given what you've said about the links between parenting and first of all, access to university and then maybe a trajectory through the admissions process. Would you envisage there's going to be a cut point on this graph below which none of those young people would ever actually apply? Uh, no, I don't think so, because I think, I mean, remember, this is, this is all the children at school in England. But it's so so, that so each one, even though it's a small category, yeah. it we're talking about many thousands of children. So in that, even in that most deprived group, there will be some very high attainers. Yeah. People's fate is not determined by whether they're on physical meals. Yeah. It, it's still, that's why I said to some extent, it's still an ecological fallacy. Mm -hmm. There will be, 
they will be very high attainers and they'll be very low attainers in this one. Yeah. So I guess the point I'm making is that we're only ever going to see a subset of this yeah. at the point of application or entry. Well, I don't know. I think, I think, I think you, you know, we could work out a system whereby yeah. everybody has access to something like this. If I could produce a model, it could just be provided as context. You can ignore it or not. And then the question of what's the threshold, I don't think... Well, we're moving on to the second part where we're going to discuss it. Okay. Yeah, but I don't think it's for the government to say, oh, if it's below 3.172, right? I agree. So presumably it's still up to the admissions tutor and the institution to use it at all or not, and if they use it, to decide where they think, to what extent they want to use it and what they do on the basis of it. I think the professional judgment of the admissions tutors and others still should remain paramount. I think I see this as more of a, an aid or a toolkit where you're given information with warning signs saying you should be aware that there's this problem, this problem, this problem. But use it to make your judgment. Yeah. So it's still judgment. Yeah, because otherwise it's arguable that you would be still pre-selecting a group that have already attained quite highly and yeah. ignoring the more disadvantaged. Well, hopefully we can come back to I mean, a couple of you raised the issue before of, um, about the, sort of the, the legal problem. You know, if you publish a criteria and say, right, any, anybody who's more than six years over physical mills get two, two A-level grades or equivalent lower, then you're, you're, you're opening yourself to a, a legal challenge in a way that you don't if you just do it in your head while you're looking at a, a UCAS form. Um, yeah, but can we come back to how we would actually do that? I just want to make a... Just to end. My concern with the modelled approach is that when it was done with value-added in schools. I don't know if any of you know, but they used to use contextualized value-added. So they use a lot of the indicators of deprivation to decide how much progress each child should be making in school, and then to punish or reward schools on the basis of what they did. There were yeah, huge problems with that. I think most of the findings from that was just flim-flam. Right? What they did is they kept cutting the data, cutting the data, so what was left is just almost all the error terms in the, in the model. And they were then presenting the error terms as though they were somehow scientific. And because most people, most practitioners, couldn't understand what they'd done, they just accepted these figures. But if you look at it carefully, you can see it's just largely the grit in the system. So I'd be really concerned, and that's why we need to be very, very careful before anybody starts um, using such model things. I think there'll be problems. I'm not sure... It doesn't solve the problem that we're still concerned only with traditional age students, and so on, and with, you know, often with full-time and that older, less traditional students, increasing those is not considered to be WP under some of these schemes. So I wondered whether in the end, the only way forward is to go back to open access. We're still faced with this thing, I think, oh, you either accept the, the measures as valid, in which case you're stuck with what you've got, or you don't accept them as valid, and rather than just trying to tinker with them in a way that might make it worse, just say, well, we're not going to use them anymore. And, you know, and I've said this many times before, there have been seminal thinkers who've just said for some time now, we will be looking back in 50 years' time and saying, we know that qualifications are stratified by sex, by age, by social class, by ethnic group, and also, you know, immigrant status, English as additional language, all of those things. We know that. We can't use almost, almost any of those as criteria for selecting people for jobs or for universities. It would be rightly illegal to do that, and yet we're using an indicator that we know is stratified by those same illegal variables. And people look back and, and say, like we look back at you know, 
know, women not having the vote. How, how, how could they have lived like that? Now, I'm not saying it will be, but it is possible. But you can imagine it almost. You wake up in 50 years' time and think, why on earth did we persevere with that system? Why didn't we just say, you know, something else? But what that us would be is up to you. So we've had a couple of issues to raise. One is, you know, what, what could we do instead? Could we make it work and, and would it be robust against legal challenges and so on? Any other questions you want to raise? Can I raise a question? Um, going back to your issue about um, comparing participants in a WP activity against non-participants, I've seen some ludicrous research for example, where they were comparing a cohort, which itself, itself was identified based on um, not just social economics, but their potential as well. Yep. They compared that against a non-cohort, and of course the cohort did a lot better. And they said, wow, in my yeah. works, it was, it was ridiculous. So we get a lot of that work, I mean, in, in education research, so generally, it's so poor, you can yeah. get this thing up. Um, I, mean, I saw this trial where it was to do with parental involvement, and they said, uh, they wrote to parents and said, we're going to do something where we want to help parents to get involved in their children's education, would you like to be involved? And they obviously got, some people wrote back and said yes, some people wrote back and said no, and some people didn't write back. And they took the people who said yes, and they gave them these engagement activities, and then at the end of the year they compared the attainment of the children with all the children who either didn't reply or... Yeah. Yeah. So the ones who replied did better than the ones who didn't reply, and the ones who said yes did better than the ones who didn't so It's obvious. Yeah, it is, absolutely. But that's what I'm saying. I think people don't actually care. They don't want to know the answer, because they wouldn't behave like that after decades of time. Absolutely. So, so in that regard, it, it doesn't make sense just to com compare pure examination results uh, for, uh, for a, an exposed group against a control group, mm -hmm. a control group doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Now, in the absence of randomised control trials, and I've read your book, very interesting, and absolutely totally agree with that as a way to go forward, but across the sector we're very reluctant to do that, as, as I'm sure you're aware of. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on a compromise that we try, which isn't controlled, but I think it's some sort of comparison by using the value added, because at least you are taking into account their prior attainment, and then if they've been on a series of activities, Okay, I think there's two two suggestions there rolled into, into one. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll deal with them separately. So the first one is okay, if we can't randomize, and we randomize solely to reduce bias, to say we've got unbiased comparison groups, there are a range of other things you can do. So I mentioned the, the discontinuity design that's used um, with the spectacles one. In a sense, we have a natural one with every year children go to school if they were born on the 31st of August but not on the 1st of September in each year. And they're very similar. You know, there's thousands of them, so you've got a natural comparison group for schools and so on. So if we just be more imaginative, using waiting lists, step wedge, well, there may be things we can do. But maybe we just have to go to a weaker level of design, which is, as you say, a comparative group. So what you're then going to do is, you've got the group that are having the intervention. You create or find a group that is similar to them, and um, try and argue they're so similar that the difference must be due to the intervention. But obviously, the sceptic can always turn around and say, well, actually, they're not that different. In some hidden thing, motivation, for example. Why did you the first So it's still better, if you're rationing it, and most things are rationed, to somehow allocate them separately. 
Granted, we've had so many people going through these kind of barriers. We could have a definitive answer. We could have had it 10 years ago. And, and I think the ethical objections to doing it don't really stand up if we don't know if it works. Because if you know it works, we should really put more into it. And if it doesn't, we should stop and find something else. So, sorry, just very quickly, I know we're running out of time. The second point you mentioned was the value added thing. I'm not sure that's the right indicator, but that would involve me talking for a lot longer about why value added doesn't work. Maybe I could discuss it on email. I think the idea is good, but I think value added may not be the way to go, but I've got another idea I could use. Okay. So, Alison is all in the hand. I don't think I was saying that. I'm, I'm not, I think the, inte the integrity and the motivation of all the practitioners in WP that I've spoken to you know, over the years, many, I don't doubt that at all. So what I'm saying is, as a collective, I mean, it's true, I think, of education more generally. It's not just to, to do with WP. You know, we, we want our trainers to be tested, we want our aircraft to be tested, but somehow, and, and our medicines and our foods and stuff. But education, you know, we say it's important, but we don't. So yes, I agree, I'm not talking about individuals, but collectively, it must appear to an outsider that we just don't care, because we don't test them things in the way that we would um, in other areas. Even criminal justice is tested much more effectively than, than education. So yes, it's not about the individual practitioners. Although you do have this concern about conflicts of interest, and it's not that people are consciously making these decisions, but just as with that randomized trial, why did all those people think it worked? You know, there must be some clever and not so clever and knowledgeable and not so knowledgeable people. And yet, universally, they all thought it worked. There's something about being involved in something as opposed to evaluating it, which is why we need independent evaluation. We wouldn't allow, or we shouldn't allow, Ben Goldacre, we shouldn't allow pharma pharmaceutical companies to test their own products for safety and effectiveness, should we? And similarly, we just shouldn't allow only people who are working in the field to test with that, but that's not, that doesn't disparage the integrity of people who work in the pharmacy. Yeah. I wondered about, um, I mean, I'm a geographer, so you might expect me to defend the geodemographic classifications mm -hmm. and Adassi and all the rest of it, but I actually, to an extent, agree that the geodemographic classifications, if you, if you come just to cross tab with the socioeconomic, mm -hmm. with, with the NS sector, quite often see this situation where you'll have someone that looks like they're from a kind of working class ethnic minority neighbourhood, but actually they're, because of the school they're going to and the area they're in, actually can you know, be professional like that. But my kind of query about binning the ecological, binning all those measures um, on the basis of the ecological fallacy um, is that if the alternative is free school meals, um, is there a kind of problem in that 
you obviously there's a whole set of ontological assumptions here about what we're interested in. So it's been some quite interesting work with geodemographics and course choices people make, and Pilot Singleton and people like that. But is there a risk if we just look at free school meals that the kind of um, the other elements of class that we know from kind of qualitative research that matter when it comes to educational attainment, um, that we will overlook that? So things like the, the role of cultural capital, say, I'm portraying my audience roots here. But um, how, how, how would you um, account for that if you were purely looking at free school meals? Okay, uh, so I'm glad you raised the question because again there are three things I can address but, so very quickly, if I conveyed the impression that I was suggesting we should only look at free school meals, then that was quite wrong I don't think I did, I don't think I used the word just what I said was let's look at one indicator, because we didn't have much time right? I could have used special needs, I could have used a, a range of things um, uh, I've done an analysis for ethnic, ethnic origin and so on, but I use it because I think it's the single best indicator that there is and even that has major problems. So I was using it to argue, yes, we can't, I don't think we can use area figures. I don't think we use individual figures either, for slightly different reasons. And I certainly wasn't proposing we use that alone. The model approach would be exactly that. And we are going to use things like the energy scores in the model and see to what extent are they good predictors of what it is we're trying to get at. Right? But if I use the analogy from the contextualized value added, my hunch, my strong hunch is, and there's already indications, is that they won't be good. They're not a good substitute for information about individuals. There is the issue about big fish, small pond stuff, and that, that could be used, but I think you're better off to use school data than area data there. Um, but the most important thing about the area one is that you know, if you were willing to gamble and say, oh, well, this is a working class area, if I pick someone at random from that area, they're likely to be from a working class group. But with widening participation, that's not what's happening. It's that some people from that working class area are presenting themselves to us to apply to university, and they are far more likely to be not representative of that area. And that's the problem with using the area instead of the individual characteristics, I would argue. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to add to that really. Yeah. It sort of plays to the agenda of what you see with the first generation immigrant families as well, where you see very naturally aspirational young people living in, um, by any proxy, what appears to be disadvantaged, including preschool meals. But their trajectory generally, um, from experience we see on many of our programmes, is faster and further than some of their counterparts in the same area. Yeah. I mean, you, there was a phrase used in the study of the assisted places scheme in the 1980s, artificial, artificially poor. And people also think that's submerged middle classes. So you've got the situation where, you know, maybe you have a particular immigrant group who've been professionals in their own country, or possibly in Kenya or Uganda or whatever, have come over here and have lived in areas which are, do not represent the circumstances they lived in before, the level of education, the aspirations of the children, or... Um, so on, and taking jobs that do not represent that as well in order to um, build a life here. And their children did very well at school. That may or may not be to do with their cultural capital, but it might just be to do with the, the nature of the families who come from particular areas. Again, it's, it's, it's all a bit more complicated. It's horrible to say that. I, know, but, uh, um, I hope we'll come up with a nice definitive answer, but I'm scared that our answer will be 
I don't think we can do it. We've tested it and we can't do it. Is that depressing? <laughs> would, you, would you be happy to say, no, we'll, we'll stick to our own discretion with attainment? Or would you join me on the streets of the placard saying qualifications are? <laughs> If we embrace the idea of using area classifications such as IMD or Mosaic, which is far too big in my opinion, or too big. Even if we embrace that idea, you mentioned that we don't have the right evidence and we don't have the evidence of contextual data. But if you just look at a very macro level, um, the, there's an underlying assumption that if you come in with the same level points and you're from a disadvantaged background, that you will then you've got that far, so you will then do equally as well, if not better. Mm -hmm. It's actually not true. It's certainly not true at our institution, because we've done some work looking at controlling for the A-level tariff and looking at WP versus non-WP, looking at area-based data and also different uh, NSEC and stuff like that. And actually, the inequality continues into university. And this isn't just our institution. There's been some publications by Hefke, which have said exactly the same. The, these WP... Fans of all knowledge, yes. Yeah. The, the, the actual disadvantage continues. So by that sort, so if you use that logic, if you then then gave WP students a lower offer, then the gap would widen even more. If, if, if they're coming with equal qualifications and there's a gap, if they're coming with lower offer, then there'd be another gap. I realise that that's not stratified. You've got to look at you look at it at a much sort of uh, lower level. But if you just look at it at that level, you can imagine a model whereby where someone has faced serious life challenges and their grades are not a, an accurate reflection of their talent, their motivation, so on. And that, yes, giving them a place would release that potential. So there will be people who will shoot up. Yeah. And um, there can be others who, yes, they, they, whatever the challenge was, will continue while they're at university. And therefore, they may not do themselves justice at university either, in which case, you know, the university might complain about levels. The problem we've got is that you know, value-added at school doesn't work. We've got a national system with QTS and inspections and SATs and all that stuff. Universities are so different that we can't really do proper value-added analysis of, of them. And I, I did it once, and just for a bit of fun, obviously, you know, um, all the non-usual suspects had the highest levels of value-added. And, and, you know, Garden value-added doesn't have to take into account dropout either. It only takes into account final which is another issue you might want to discuss later, is, you know, is dropout something that we should simply accept? You know, it, it, everyone's really scared about dropout, but in there are many things that people change careers. Is it possible that people should be tasting the university more and then if they drop out, let's not worry about it. I mean, if they're dropping out for reasons that we can control, but if they've just said, actually, having tried it out, I don't think this is for me, and walk away, is that okay? It might be. Or maybe we need to change that. All I'm saying is, I think we can't really do that analysis. There is a debate, and our review came up with, in a sense, two sets of findings. One group of research saying um, that the, the, the WP students are doing worse than expected, and some of them saying they're doing about as well as expected. There are very few saying they're doing better than expected. Um, but I say I think the whole thing is very, very difficult to do, and I'm not sure how much credence I'd give to the whole thing. I know we've run out of time. I did put up my email address. And I like talking about this. I'm not rushing away. And do contact me if you want to pursue it. Or just ask for one of the papers or whatever. Yeah? I mean, a good start might be the one I did with Vicky Bolivar.